The Old Covenant reading for this morning is taken from the book of Proverbs chapter 18, beginning at verse 20. We will simply be reading verses 20 and 21 this morning. The word of the Lord. From the fruit of a man's mouth, his stomach is satisfied. He is satisfied by the yield of his lips. Death and life are in the power of the tongue. And those who love it will eat its fruits. Here endeth the Old Covenant reading. The New Covenant reading is taken from the letter of James. James chapter 3, beginning at verse 1. We'll be reading through verse 12 this morning. The word of our God. Not many of you should become teachers, my brothers... For you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. For we all stumble in many ways. And if anyone does not stumble in what he says, he is a perfect man, able also to bridle his whole body. If we put bits into the mouths of horses so that they obey us, we guide their whole bodies as well. Look at the ships also. Though they are so large and are driven by strong winds, they are guided by a very small rudder wherever the will of the pilot directs. So also the tongue is a small member, yet it boasts great things. How great a forest is set ablaze by such a small fire, and the tongue is a fire, a world of unrighteousness. The tongue is set among our members staining the whole body, setting on fire the entire course of life, and set on fire by hell. For every kind of beast and bird, of reptile and sea creature, can be tamed and has been tamed by mankind. But no human being can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil, full of deadly poison. With it we bless our Lord and Father, and with it we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth come blessing and cursing. My brothers, these things ought not to be so. Does a spring pour forth from the same opening, both fresh and salt water? Can a fig tree, my brothers, bear olives, or a grapevine produce figs? Neither can a salt pond yield fresh water. It's only June, and we already know what the big box office hit of 2022 is going to be. Maverick, the sequel to Top Gun raked in $160 million in its opening weekend. Uh, From what I hear from the buzz, this is the sort of movie that people are also going to be watching 10 and 15 years from now. This is the hit of this year. Now, Maverick, like the original Top Gun, is about um, Navy fighter pilots who are being trained to become the very best of the very best. I mean, it's exciting stuff. And I'm sure that many teenagers, as they come out of this movie, 
perhaps a few older folk as well, go home dreaming of becoming fighter pilots. I mean, the speed, uh, the challenge of it all, the adrenaline rush. It's just incredible. I mean, where else can a 24-year-old be given anything like the responsibility of flying an $85 million plane and defending our country and our way of life? Being a fighter pilot is exciting. It's important. And it's also exceedingly dangerous. I haven't seen Maverick yet. But I'm sure, just like Top Gun, it did not obscure that last point. Fighter pilots die. They die in training, and they die in combat. It is exciting, it is important, and it is exceedingly dangerous. And James is telling us this morning, your tongue is a lot like that. Our speech can be both exciting and important, but it can also be exceedingly dangerous. Nevertheless, there are two critical differences between us using our tongues and people becoming fighter pilots. First of all, only a tiny, tiny segment of the population who are really in some ways very elite ever become fighter pilots. And yet each and every one of us has to deal with the power and the danger of our tongues. And second, when it comes to using our tongues, every single one of us is going to crash and burn. That's what James tells us this morning. You know, when people dream of being fighter pilots, um, they dream of sticking every landing perfectly of winning every single dogfight. But James won't allow us to imagine that that's what we're going to do with our speech, with the way that we use our words. This morning we're going to look at this portion of God's word under five headings. First, don't rush into the cockpit. Second, our common struggle. Third, The tongue has the power of life and death. Fourth, the untamed tongue is bent toward evil. And fifth, the importance of keeping in step with the spirit. We begin with a warning. Don't rush to get into the cockpit. Look at verse 1 with me. Not many of you should become teachers, my brothers. For you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. Now it's natural for us, I mean, really all of us, at some point in our lives to think, maybe I should be a teacher. Um, You might have been inspired by a particularly gifted teacher, and you want to walk in his or her footsteps. Uh, You might have been inspired by a series of really bad teachers, and you're thinking to yourself, surely I can do better than they have. And also, there's a place in life, this often happens when we're in our teenage years, but it can also recur to us later on in life, where we start to realize we have something to say. 
We want people to listen to us, to hear what we have to say, that our words can make a difference. And when you think like that, the prospect of having a group of students five days a week coming to your classroom, whether they want to or not, so they have to hear what you have to say, or coming to church at least once a week, so they hear what you have to say, that might seem really attractive. It's natural for us to want to do that. But James is saying, not so fast. James himself is a teacher. He fully understands that leading and teaching are important gifts that the Lord gives to his church. As the Apostle Paul writes to the Ephesians, the risen and ascended Christ gives his church the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, along with pastors and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up of the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and to the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. That's good stuff. So pastors and teachers are Christ's good gift to his church. Or as Paul will later tell Timothy, the saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of a bishop, he aspires to a noble task. So we shouldn't be surprised that in this case, young men in particular are going to say, I think that's me. I want to be used in this way in Christ's church. And James is saying, slow down. That's not the whole story. Slow down. Yes, teaching can be both exciting and important, but it is also quite dangerous. Not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. Now, James, as he frequently does, is simply pulling together a couple of strands from Christ's own teaching, which we see in the Gospels. First, Jesus plainly warns us, not just teachers, by the way, that we will be held accountable for our words. Our Lord says, I tell you on the day of judgment, people will give account for every careless word that they speak. For by your words you will be justified, and by your words you will be condemned. Jesus also warns us quite plainly, that to whom much is given, much will be required. If you have the awesome privilege of teaching God's word to God's people, God is going to hold you to a high standard. And so James ties these two truths together, and he urges us to slow down and to take stock. That signing up to be a teacher in Christ's church means that you will face a stricter judgment. As I mentioned, when young men dream about becoming fighter pilots, they see themselves as sticking every landing and winning every dogfight. That is human nature. And perhaps when you're dreaming about becoming a teacher or as a young person, or even as an older person, you think that's going to be you. But James wants us to understand that nobody does this with their tongue except for Jesus Christ. Look at verse 2 with me. For we all stumble in many ways. And if anyone does not stumble in what he says, he is a perfect man, 
also able to bridle his whole body. Now, if you were concerned that the sermon this morning was only going to be applicable to me and Silas and maybe a few of you who want to become teachers someday, rest assured, James is saying, no, this is for all of you. It's not just pastors who have this problem. We all stumble in many ways. We all use our tongues. We are all responsible for how we use our tongues. And God is going to hold us responsible. As James warned us in the first chapter, if anyone thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue, he deceives his heart. This person's religion is worthless. Who? Not just pastors, but anyone. If anyone thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue, but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. Now in chapter 3, verse 2, James gives us a blunt diagnosis. We all stumble in many ways. Who? All of us. What do we do? We all stumble. Is this just kind of a rare thing, you know, it might happen occasionally to a few people over there? No. In many ways. I guess James had never read The Power of Positive Thinking or uh, Robert Shore's book on the uh, self-esteem reformation. But he's actually giving us something much better than words that are going to puff us up with flattering us. James is giving us the unvarnished truth of the word of God so that we will be conformed more and more into the likeness of Jesus Christ. For we all stumble in many ways, and if anyone does not stumble in what he says, he is a perfect man, able also to bridle his whole body. Now, the fact that we all stumble in many ways wouldn't be that big a deal if our words only did minor superficial damage. If our words weren't really that significant. You know, I don't care about what you say, I only care about what you do. If that was true then the fact that we stumble would you know, be a minor problem. But it turns out, as we read this morning from the book of Proverbs, that our tongues are incredibly powerful. A substantial part of the impact that we have throughout our lives, both for good and for ill, comes from what we say. And Proverbs says, death and life are in the power of the tongue. When it comes to the tongue, we all stumble in many ways, and the consequences of how we use our tongues has a much greater impact than we might at first imagine. If you'll allow me, I want to tell you a personal story about how the tongue can be used for good. Maybe it's particularly appropriate on this, which is Father's Day. Um, for many years before my father died, when I would drive and visit him, and uh, we'd spend time together, whenever I said goodbye and was getting ready to leave, my father would hug me, and then he would look me in the eyes and he would say, I am so proud of you, son. Well, during those years, I had a lot of rough times. I had failures. You know what that's like. I had financial difficulties. I couldn't get from where I was to where I wanted to go, and I was dealing with 
all the ordinary struggles of coming up short in a broken and fallen world. I do not have words to tell you how much mileage I got out of the fact that my father repeatedly and openly told me that he was proud of who I was. Now, some of you young parents, and I am amazed at how good the parents are in this church, you know that you want to give that sort of affirmation to your children, but maybe you're a bit concerned about overdoing it. You want to hit the right balance. That if you give too much affirmation like that, you know, you're going to give them big heads and puff them up, and you don't want that to happen. Let me tell you, that that's a good motive. But it's entirely unfounded. I, too, was once young. Now I'm old. And I have never yet seen a single child who has been harmed by the repeated and heartfelt and honest affirmation that their parents love them and were proud of them. It is very unlikely that you are going to be the first Beloved, this is not a hypothetical discussion that James is giving us. Death and life are in the power of your tongue. And God is calling you to use it for good and to give life to those around you. Look at verses 3 through 5 with me. If we put bits into the mouths of horses so that they obey us, we guide their whole bodies as well. Uh, Look at the ships also. Though they are so large and driven by strong winds, they are guided by a very small rudder, wherever the will of the pilot directs. So also the tongue is a small member, yet it boasts of great things. Uh, Interestingly, the fact that a rudder is just a small thing that steers a great ship was a very common image word picture in the ancient world. I mean, Aristotle used it, Plutarch used it, many people used it. It's kind of a really neat analogy for a number of purposes, but particularly as James uses it here, for our tongues. And the point that James is making is not simply that a rudder is small compared to the size of a ship. He's saying the rudder directs where the ship ends up. And that's also true with your tongues. Yes, it's true that your tongues have an outsized impact on your life and on the life of other people. I mean, I think I calculated it out, and my my tongue is something like uh, less than one one one-thousandth of the size of my whole body. It's really small. But James's point isn't just that it's small. It's that to a large degree, where you end up in life, the impact that you have on other people is driven by how you use words. The words of an influential speaker can even steer the course of a community or even a great nation. Consider the Battle of Britain. And I know for some of you, that's such ancient history, it means nothing to you. But for those who are my age, we grew up in the shadow of World War II. We thought about these things a lot. They, They were the story of our movies. The Battle of Britain takes place in 1940. In June of 1940, France had fallen to the Nazis. And Adolf Hitler actually thought that the British, seeing the French falling, would simply sue for peace. They'd want some kind of negotiated agreement so they could get out of this war. 
But the British stood firm. Through the summer of 1940, into the fall of 1940, the Nazis relentlessly bombed southern England. And they sent their fighter planes over southern England, seeking to gain air superiority so that that fall they could begin to land invasion. What was it like if you were one of the British? I mean, France had a bigger army than Britain did. They fell really fast. And Nazi Germany is getting ready to invade your land. But as the darkness and the bombs fell on southern England, the people actually clustered around radios to listen to Winston Churchill talk. Just words. But his words stiffened their spine. Uh, Winston Churchill, through his speeches and through his talks, convinced the people that their cause was just, that their sacrifices were worth it, and that one day people would look back on their heroic resistance to the evil of Nazism and say, this was England's finest hour. It is not an exaggeration to say that for the 18 months between the fall of France and the time that the United States of America entered the war in Europe, that the words of Winston Churchill held together England and changed the course of Western history. Death and life are in the power of the tongue. Well, those sorts of examples are obvious and dramatic. But James also has in mind the numerous ways that our words are used to build up someone or to tear someone down that we never imagined would be that impactful. Um, I've told this story before because it, it just has left such a lasting impression on me. But I have this vivid, vivid picture of a thing that R.C. Sproul once did with a group of adult students. He passed out to them a bunch of three-by-five cards, and he said, listen, I, I want you to write on the front of this card, uh, whatever comes to mind, the top three or four things that people have said to you that were really encouraging, positive things that impacted your life for good. And they did. You know, it was not that hard. It was kind of a joyful thing to recall these good things that people had said to them. And the interesting thing was, here are these 45 and 50-year-olds who were professionals writing down that something that was encouraging told to them when they were in 6th grade or 8th grade that had stuck with them and impacted their life. And honestly, the people who had said it probably forgot it the next day. And then R.C. said, you know, turn over your cards. I want you to write down the three or four most painful things that anyone has said to you. And that was a much harder exercise because just doing it brought up really bad memories. But people did that, and it was the same thing. There were 45-year-old accountants and executives and lawyers and doctors recalling how deeply they had been hurt 30 years earlier by a careless word or something mean-spirited that had been said about them. Not only recalling but perhaps remembering that those words, that attitude, still hurt them. Now here's the real kicker. Beloved, someone someday is going to be asked to take out a card and write down something you said on it. Which side of the card do you want them to be writing on? 
see your careless words, little gossip here, or your thoughtful words, the encouragement, the pointing people to Jesus Christ could change people's lives for better or for worse. Your tongue may be very small, but your words might heal and inspire, or your words may deeply wound and push someone towards despair. So if we are going to glorify God and enjoy him forever, we have to learn how to do this, how to glorify God and to love our neighbors with our tongues. How do we work toward that goal? Well, as we've already heard, first, don't rush to get into the cockpit. It's dangerous. Second, remember that this is our common struggle. This is not a sermon or a portion of God's word that's applicable to someone else. This is our common struggle. This is for all of us. And third, remember that the tongue is important. It has the power of life and of death. But that's not enough. If we kid ourselves to think, you know, my tongue is basically good. We have to realize what James is telling us here, that the untamed tongue left to itself is bent toward evil. Look at the second half of verse 5, all the way through verse 8 with me. How great a forest is set ablaze by such a small fire, and the tongue is a fire, a world of unrighteousness. The tongue is set among our members, staining the whole body, setting on fire the entire course of life, and set on fire by hell. For every kind of beast and bird, of reptile and sea creature, can be tamed and has been tamed by mankind. But no human being can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil, full of deadly poison. Uh, To put it mildly, that is not a flattering picture. But that's where we all start. Guiding a horse and steering a ship are both useful activities. Now James shifts to the destructive power of the tongue. And he calls it a world of unrighteousness. As Dan Doriani points out, Scripture has long used sins of the tongue to describe human fallenness. I mean, think of um, Isaiah 6, that beautiful and moving passage where the Lord appears to Isaiah. It's It's a great temple scene. And... Isaiah says, in the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the real king. I saw the Lord high and lifted up. And the angels were were crying to each other, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God of hosts. The whole earth is filled with his glory. Do you remember what Isaiah said? Isaiah said, woe is me, for I have seen the Lord of hosts. Right? Why? Because I am a man of unclean lips and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. The first thing that Isaiah thought of was his own tongue had not been sanctified to the glory of God. When the Apostle Paul concludes his indictment of human sin in Romans chapter 3, he too turns to the tongue. Paul writes, There is no one righteous 
not even one. All have turned aside. They have together become worthless. There is no one who does good, not even one. Their throats are open graves. Their tongues practice deceit. The poison of vipers is on their lips. Their mouths are full of cursing and bitterness. Apart from God's grace, keep in mind Paul's talking about unbelievers here. Apart from God's grace, beloved, this is a description of our tongues. The untamed tongue is bent towards evil. And it's not difficult to realize just how much destruction such untamed tongues will cause. Just as a single match can start a vast forest fire, a little gossip left unchecked can wreck a church. A few hasty, maybe just a bad attempted humor words toward a newcomer to our church, to any organization, might so hurt the first impression that person's reputation in the group that it becomes easier for that person to go somewhere else than to live down the careless words that we uttered. And here's the kicker. As Tom Wright bluntly states the matter, it turns out that the tongue isn't simply a private world of injustice. It is getting its real inspiration from hell itself. Satan's plan is that you use your tongue for evil. God's plan is that you use it for good. Regrettably, this evil is not restricted to unbelievers, so that the moment we are born again, the problem does not just magically go away. We can see this in verses 9 and 10. Please look there with me. Verses 9 and 10. With it, that is with the tongue, we bless our Lord and Father, and with it we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth come blessing and cursing. My brothers, these things ought not to be so. Now what you realize, he's obviously talking about believers, and in one sense this is good news. Uh, Before this point, All we were naturally inclined to do was to use our tongues to puff ourselves up, even if it meant cutting other people down. Now at least there are blessings coming out. But but looking at nature, we realize just how utterly unnatural this is for salt water and fresh to come forth from the same spring. You know, and if you have one type of fruit tree, it does not produce another type of fruit. Something is fundamentally wrong, but this is true of us. should say that in many ways, the church in North America is really just starting to grapple with this, which is odd because of how clearly this is taught in God's word. Uh, But for many years, the church, and I don't mean like liberal churches, I mean all of us, right? The church in North America has tended not to take verbal abuse with the appropriate level of seriousness. Uh, Basically, we drew the line at bruises, you know? No bruises, yeah, that wasn't great behavior, but it's okay. Uh, We almost imagine that that saying, you know, sticks and stones may break my bones, but names will never hurt me, is somehow true. And we're just coming to grips now with the fact that verbal and emotional abuse deeply harms people and harms those around them. 
I think this reveals that we simply have not been reading and applying God's word nearly as carefully as we should have been. But let us turn the lens not on the church as though we're talking about other people, but let's turn the lens of God's word upon ourselves. This is the question. Do we use our own tongues to bless the Lord and Father and then turn right around and use that same tongue to cut down someone or to puff ourselves up? James tells us the obvious conclusion. Beloved, these things ought not to be so. But what are we going to do about it? If we are going to make any progress in this area... We need to see that we need something far more profound than a three-step plan to develop more wholesome speech. Our tongues are not a loose shutter banging around on a house that simply need to be strapped down. Rather, our words flow out of the innermost recesses of our hearts. Look at verses 11 and 12 with me. Does the spring pour forth from the same opening, both fresh and salt water? Can a fig tree, my brothers, bear olives or a grapevine produce fruits? Neither can a salt pond yield fresh water. We all see how unnatural this is. But that's precisely what happens with our tongues because the redeemed people of God are simultaneously justified and still sinners. Your old man did not completely go away the day that you were born again. Now it's true that tiny rudders steer a great ship, but it is the human hand that steers the rudder. Actually, James says that earlier, right? It goes wherever the pilot wants it to go. Your tongue may direct a great deal of the course of your life, but it is the thoughts of your hearts and your will that directs your tongue. Sadly, we're all prone to excuse ourselves to minimize the sins of our tongues rather than to mortify them, that is, to put them to death. We treat our words as though they were just an innocent slip, a mistake. You know, I didn't really mean it. And if you're like me, and actually, regrettably, I know you're like me in this, you really are, you'll say something like, you know, Well, yeah, I shouldn't have said that, but I was exhausted. What we ought to realize is that's not an excuse. The fact that we're exhausted caused us to let down our guard so that our hearts were actually being revealed. What we need is not something we can do. We need God to renovate our hearts. As Jesus makes clear, our tongue problem is really a heart problem. For out of the abundance of the heart, The mouth speaks. To get our tongues under control, what we need is greater sanctification in our minds and our hearts. And beloved, this is not a self-help project. You cannot do it. How can you tame your tongue? Beloved, you cannot do it. But Jesus and the Holy Spirit can Listen to this encouraging word from perhaps the most important post-apostolic theologian in the entire history of the church. St. Augustine explains that James says 
or more accurately, James does not say that no one can tame the tongue. Rather, he says no man can tame the tongue so that when it is tamed, we will confess that it was tamed by the mercy of God, that it was tamed by the assistance of God, and that it was tamed by the grace of God. And beloved, thankfully, God's grace is sufficient even for you. As the Apostle Paul tells us in his letter to the Galatians, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Beloved, this is the plain truth. You will never tame your tongue through discipline and moralism because moralism cannot change your heart. Let me say that again. You will never tame your tongue through discipline and moralism because moralism will not change your heart. But walking by the Spirit will. I think part of our problem is walking doesn't sound very dramatic. You know, in the ancient world, just like today, walking is basically the slowest way to get anywhere. But it's a regular image used in the Bible. Because you keep putting one foot in front of another, and eventually you get somewhere. And God says, I want you to walk, but not simply to a destination, as though you're going on this journey by yourself. I want you to keep in step with the Holy Spirit. That is, to keep in step with God. Now, how do two people walk together? They have to be going in the same direction, and they have to enjoy each other's company. That's how people end up walking together. Beloved, the Lord isn't going to change his direction to satisfy your whims. He's going the right way. And what this means is throughout your day, you have to keep me, by his grace, be turned back to him. That you realize that the way you're going, the way you're talking, maybe in some very small ways, is not what God wants. It is not the way to glorify God right now. And by his grace, you turn back and say, I'd rather walk with God and enjoy his pleasure than to get this temporary passing pleasure from sin. This comes from a commitment to the means of grace, principally the word of God, prayer and the sacraments, and it comes to self-consciously meditating upon and applying God's word throughout each day of your life. You know, you can't just like check the box, I did my quiet time today, and then move on to other things. The whole point of reading God's word is that you would meditate on it throughout the day, right? The blessed man of the first psalm meditates upon God's word day and night in order to apply it, right? To embrace the promises and to walk in the way that the Lord is setting before us. That takes faith. So trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him and he will direct your paths. Amen.